All right, let's uh, begin with prayer. Father, we do thank you for this time. Uh, We do want to honor you with it. Uh, We believe that the best way we can do that is by giving attention to your word now. And so we pray that you'll help us as we do that. uh, That as we search these um, chapters, that you will be the one to teach them to us. That you will uh, make their meaning clear to us. That you'll reveal yourself uh, to us. Uh, that you'll point out uh, areas in our lives where we uh, need to conform uh, to become more like you, to follow your will, and we pray you'll help us to see that. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 56. If you're using a Bible from this room, Isaiah 56 begins on page 522. Uh, Otherwise, if you need help finding it, you probably have a table of contents. And if you are skilled enough to multitask, once you find Isaiah 56, mark it, like hold it with your finger or something, and look at John chapter 10. So we'll look at both of them. Um, I had planned on us reading part of John 10 together to to sort of make this connection, but uh, since we didn't do that earlier, we will try to point out a couple of connections that I think are are helpful for us. So Isaiah 56 and John 10. Yeah. And let me go ahead and um, read a good part of this uh, in John 10 as kind of an introduction. And we'll start in verse 7. So John 10 and verse 7. Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf Snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. 
Now, I read that to you here at the beginning, so you can go ahead and turn back to Isaiah 56 now. I read that to you here at the, at the beginning because Jesus' teachings about himself as, as a shepherd and as a good shepherd, not just any shepherd, but the true and good shepherd, come from something that Isaiah is going to show us tonight. Uh, Jesus, a lot of times, uh, in his actions and in his words, is just really living out a lot of the things that have been written beforehand in the Old Testament. And in John 10, uh, Jesus is, is living out and explaining and teaching something that Isaiah had written about him centuries before. And we're in Isaiah 56, and Isaiah is near the end of this book that we've been at now since, uh, was it August when we started it? Something like that. Have you guys enjoyed Isaiah? At least a little bit? Like maybe at least one of the lessons? I don't know. Has it been helpful? I hope. Uh, I pray that it has been. And here at the end of Isaiah's writings, he observes a disconnect. Because he has revealed, uh, or he has, he has helped to show what God has revealed about himself. And so Isaiah has put a lot of these things in writing. And, and Isaiah notices a disconnect between these truths about God and the way that his own people have responded to him. And we run the same risk. So uh, it's easy for us, maybe not so easy uh, tonight since things have been thrown off a little bit, but most of the time we come into a service like this, we know what to expect, and it's very easy for us just to kind of go through the motions um, and not really give much thought to it, isn't it? And we just uh, do it because it feels right or it's supposed to or we think that that's you know, just kind of normal. And as Isaiah shows true things about God, he expects that his readers will worship correctly, appropriately. Um, and so the question we want to answer tonight is, is how does God picture Isaiah, or sorry, how does Isaiah picture God bringing his salvation and, and establishing a way for his people to worship him? How does God bring all that about? And so in your notes... Um, and, and my goal is to be done by 8 o'clock. And, um, well, my goal is to be done by 8 o'clock. <laughs> How does Isaiah uh, picture these things about God? Three main points, and uh, I encourage you to write these down and uh, use them for your own uh, thought processes this week. Three pictures that Isaiah gives about God. Here's the first one. Number one, God gathers His people like a shepherd gathers his sheep. God gathers his people like a shepherd gathers his sheep. We've mentioned all along that throughout Isaiah, uh, Isaiah is, is almost continually emphasizing God's salvation, the type of salvation that God brings, the way that God saves his people. So look at the way he picks up that theme in verse 1. So Isaiah 56, 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my, what does it say? Salvation will come, and my righteousness will be revealed. So again, this is a promise that salvation is coming. Does this mean that God never in any way saved His people in the past? 
It can't mean that because we know enough of the Old Testament before this to see lots of ways that God had, uh, had saved His people, or, or, uh, whether as an entire nation or as individuals. And what He's saying, though, is that my salvation will come in the future in a more perfect way, it, that, a, that a true Savior will come and will reveal His righteousness. And so he, he continues in verse 2 to explain kind of how this will happen. He says, Blessed is the man who does this, so who keeps justice and does righteousness, and blessed is the Son of Man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. So it sounds like God is saying, um, blessed is, is the man who keeps the Sabbath, because that's the type of person who is righteous. So, so we could think about this, and we probably should. Um, the Sabbath was one of God's commands, right? Ten Commandments, um, honor the Sabbath day, keep it holy, right? Um, could people just automatically be right with God by only keeping the Sabbath? Was that the only requirement? No, we know there was lots more to it, um, and God wasn't only looking at the way they externally obeyed, He was looking on their heart. Um, and how they responded to, to him and to his teaching. So the Sabbath is, uh, is being used here just really as an example. The Lord is saying that if you're going to do righteousness, you will do things like keep the Sabbath. Um, he's using that uh, as an example. And he even says that this is true not just of people in Israel, but skip down to verse 6. And he mentions another group of people. Who does he talk about in verse 6? And the foreigners... So, again, not just Israel. This is not just for the people who received those commandments initially. But he says in verse 6 that the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord and minister to Him and love the name of the Lord uh, and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. Again, using the Sabbath there as, a, as an example. The type of people who are obedient to the Lord. And he says this about them in verse 7. These I will bring to my holy mountain, make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Now, if you've, if you've read your New Testaments, uh, that phrase right there should also sound pretty familiar. Remember, Jesus got really angry with the people exchanging money in the temple, and he says, uh, he says my Father's house is to be a house of of worship, of prayer specifically, but you have made it a den of thieves, he tells them. Yeah, because they were more concerned with making money for themselves than they were about coming to worship. And, and, and Isaiah is saying here, the Lord is saying through Isaiah, my house, my temple is a place of prayer and worship, not just for Israel, but for all peoples, the foreigners included. Now here's why this is pretty astounding for us. Uh, you and I are the foreigners. You and I are not Israel. And to think that God would extend His salvation to us is astonishing. That we, that we would not be able to do anything to get ourselves to God, but that He would come for us. He says, my salvation will come and, and foreigners will join themselves to the Lord so that they will worship me in my place just as my people did. You might be wondering, how does any of this uh, relate to God being a shepherd? Well, look at verse 8. 
The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. And this is exactly what Jesus said in John 10. He says, I have other sheep who aren't of this fold, and I'm going to gather them. I have to gather them to myself. So in that, in that phrase there, Jesus is saying, I'm not here only for Israel. I'm gathering sheep from all, over, from all the nations, and they will be one flock with my sheep, Israel. And so God is acting like a shepherd, gathering his sheep. And this is in contrast to the next thing in your notes, where we see uh, God speaking against the leaders of Israel who really were like false shepherds. Uh, Look down at the middle of verse 11. As he's talking about these people, he calls them, he says, but they are shepherds who have no understanding. So he's not exactly uh, complimenting these people, is he? These are shepherds, but they know nothing. They don't know. Uh, they don't know what they're doing. They have no knowledge. So, the contrast is God acting like a shepherd, and He's contrasting that with these false shepherds. And some of the effects of these false shepherds, uh, first of all, was a lack of knowledge. So that's what we just saw, right? God's leaders are shepherds who have no understanding, and and we probably should back up even to verse nine, where. Uh, Isaiah says, All you beasts of the field, come to devour all you beasts in the forest. Now we saw, we saw Jesus in John 10, again kind of allude to this, uh, when the sheep are unguarded, who comes for the sheep? The wolves do. Yeah, the beasts. And so Isaiah is, is telling the wolves here, the beasts, he says, come out, the sheep are unguarded. He says in verse 10, His watchmen are blind, they are all without knowledge. So you could imagine um, that if the shepherd doesn't teach the sheep anything, and if the shepherd doesn't guard the sheep, uh, the sheep probably don't stand much of a chance to be all that um, intelligent and, and all that protected themselves, do they? And, and this is, he's obviously speaking metaphorically here. Isaiah isn't only really concerned with, with the sheep of Israel. He's concerned with the people. But the people were like sheep who didn't have a shepherd. Uh, their leaders were were not helpful. So um, they, the leaders didn't know the truth. They acted as though they had a lack of knowledge. And so the other people picked up on this, uh, this lack of knowledge. Now, the second thing, the second effect here of the false shepherds was that they pursued idols. So there was a lack of knowledge and there was a pursuit of idols. Well, think about what you know about knowledge. If shepherds have no uh, knowledge, how much more knowledge do idols have? No more at all, right? Like they also have none because they are nothing, all right? So look at the comparison here. Go to chapter 57 and verse 6. And so, so Isaiah now is talking to the sheep, and he's telling them, verse 6, among the, stu- the smooth Stones of the valley is your portion, because these people would take the stones and they'd build altars to these idols. So you have your portion among the stones. Uh, verse 6 goes on, They are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You've brought a grain offering. All right, when, when people would bring offerings to something, that was an act of worship, right? So here he's saying, it's as though you're bringing your offerings to these stone altars that you're building to your idols. Well, how far was that going to get them? 
Uh, not very, right? Um, and so, so you can see the effect here. The shepherds have no knowledge. They're leaving the sheep unguarded, and so the sheep are, are on their own, and they're pursuing idols because they don't know what else to pursue. So they're like, well, we have to worship something. Let's build something out of these stones. And so they're kind of making religion up as they go, uh, whereas God had revealed himself to them and had given them a specific way to worship, but they don't know it because their shepherds aren't, aren't teaching them in that way. Now compare that with the refuge of the true shepherd. So go all the way down to verse 13. And Isaiah says, When you cry out, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. Now it's actually kind of kind of humorous that Isaiah would say that. When you're in trouble, pray to your idols and good luck. And how far would that get him? Again, nowhere, right? Um, he, in fact, Isaiah goes on, the end of verse 13, The wind will carry them all off, and a breath will take them away, but he who takes refuge in me, this is the Lord speaking through Isaiah, in me, shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. So, in your notes, the refuge of the true shepherd. Uh, the refuge is that you get to possess the land and inherit the mountain. Uh, a lot of times in most of these uh, Old Testament cities, when they would build the altars they, uh, to the idols, they'd, they'd set up these idols, and they'd do it on a mountain. They'd go to the highest place in the city, and they'd set the altar there. They'd set up their idols there. And so the Lord is saying, and you take refuge in me, you get to live on my mountain, where I'm to be worshipped, and you get to inherit the land. So you remember how in um, um, Exodus, the Lord promised to give Israel a promised land? So this, this promise is kind of like that, that Isaiah is giving them. But as we'll see next week, the land that God's people uh, will inherit is not just a portion of Palestine, but it's actually what? The whole earth. A new heavens and a new earth. And that's the main topic we'll look at next week. Second thing. Second picture that Isaiah gives here. Is that the shepherd is worthy of worship. So God is like a shepherd. And number two, He is a shepherd who is worthy of worship. So compare what God says about Himself with what we see about the idol. Let's just make a comparison here. So go to chapter 57, verse 15. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, so He also is, is lifted up, remember, on a mountain, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Okay, let's think about that phrase, he inhabits eternity. How do idols come into existence? Somebody builds it, right? Somebody fashions it, somebody, somebody forms it. Yeah, somebody creates it uh, by human hands. How does the Lord come into existence? It says that he inhabits eternity, right? He's always there. No one created him. It's, it's not a comparison to compare the Lord with these idols. And so the Lord says there at the end of verse 15, I dwell in the high and holy place, and I also dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Which means that this one who is high and holy has, has come down and has made himself available 
to people who will humble themselves before Him. That is the kind of God who is really worthy of worship. But again, there's a contrast here. Uh, We see that the Lord is worthy of worship, the shepherd is worthy of worship, but the contrast here is with false worship. So, Isaiah gives some of these examples of false worship, and and we'll go through these sort of quickly. Um, The first example he gives of false worship is of self-deceit. Of self-deceit. And in the first two verses of chapter 58, uh, he talks about the way, the ways that his people genuinely seek righteousness, and yet even as they're seeking the Lord and His righteousness, they don't realize how sinful they are. They think they are okay before this righteous God that they want to meet with. So they're, they're deceiving themselves. And again, I think this is really very near to where most of us are a lot of the times. We, I don't doubt that most of us really want to know God. I really think that's true for most of us in here. And yet, it's also very easy to, to fool ourselves and to, um, to, because we know we want to see God, to, to just sort of ignore or overlook areas in our lives that sometimes can be pretty obviously sinful. And that's what was going on with these people in, in Isaiah's day. The second example of false worship is unacceptable fasting. Unacceptable fasting. And I don't have time to read a lot of these verses to, to show you um, how, what Isaiah has to say about all these categories. Um, but it's, it seems as though Isaiah is telling these people that, the, yes, you're fasting, but the reason you are fasting is, is for your own benefit. Um, it, it, it sounds like, if, I, if I'm reading it correctly, that Isaiah is um, condemning these people of, basically they are fasting so that they'll have extra food that they can sell off and make money off of. Well, is that a right motive for fasting? No, it's like they, they're, they're thinking to themselves, I can please the Lord, but their ultimate motive is not really to please the Lord, it's, it's to benefit themselves. And so the Lord says, um, I, will, I will point this out, um, go to verse 7, he, he basically says, what is true fasting? And he says this, Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house and when you see the naked to cover him and, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? So, so Isaiah is saying, yes, if you fast, you'll have extra food, but what should you do with it? Give it away. Find somebody who's homeless and can't get a meal for themselves and share with them. That's the kind of fasting God was looking for. Uh, the third example here is that they were dishonoring the Sabbath. They were dishonoring the Sabbath. And, and again, this is like a couple chapters ago that we saw where the Lord is, is using the Sabbath as an example of, if you are truly righteous and, and obeying my laws, uh, you'll set aside as holy what I tell you to set aside as holy, even this day uh, of worship. Now, I want to be, be extra clear here, uh, just, just so we're not... Um, applying this too directly because we're not under the same kinds of laws these days, are we? Like, are we obligated to keep the Sabbath in the same way that Israel was in the Old Testament? No, we're not. Are we, are we commanded to fast uh, certain times a year the same way that they were? No, we're not. And again, um, this shows 
not that God has softened his demands, but it shows that Jesus has come and fulfilled all these things perfectly for us. So that God does, it's not that God expects less of us in our worship, it's that he expects our worship to be just as genuine. Uh, so we shouldn't, we shouldn't, again, looking to be worshiped to benefit ourselves like some of these in Isaiah's day were. Uh, God is looking for us to express sincere worship to him. It's not going to look the same, necessarily. We're not going to keep the same kinds of laws. Uh, but it doesn't mean that he's, that he's uh, softened his commands for us. The last example of false worship that's given here in chapter 59 is injustice. So write the word injustice in the blank there. Lots of examples given. Again, not time to go through all of them. I encourage you to read it for yourself. What we can look at, though, is the results of, these, of this false worship. Uh, down in verse 15, uh, the last half of, of the verse there, "...the Lord saw it, and it displeased him." that there was no justice. Because justice wasn't being carried out, because true worship wasn't happening, the Lord is displeased. The results of false worship, the Lord is displeased. So the shepherd deserves to be worshipped. He's worthy of worship. And the way he will get worship, number three, is that God will gather worshipers for himself. He's worthy of worship, and so he gathers these worshipers for himself. Um, I want to read these verses quickly, fill in those blanks for you, and then we'll wrap this up. Um, So the Lord is displeased, but then verse 16, he saw that there was no man, and he wondered that there was no one to intercede. All right, so let's think about this as we read. There's There's no justice happening, but there's also no one to intercede and bring about justice. That's a problem, right? So, what's he going to do? Look at the last part of verse 16. This is awesome. So then, his own arm brought him salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. The Lord saw there's no man to do it, so what does he say? I'll do it. I'll extend my arm. So, sub-points there. How does God gather worship for himself? He extends his arm. He reaches down. Verse 17 tells us, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. All right, let's stop right there. Um, at some point, have you, have you all ever um, read about or thought about or studied um, the armor of God that Paul talks about in Ephesians, right? Uh, what's, what, what, what is the helmet? The helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness. Well, look what, this, look what God is putting on here. He puts on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. So for us to put on God's armor really is for us to dress ourselves as Christ, isn't it? As God coming to us. So write in your notes there that he embodies righteousness. He puts it on as if he didn't have it on already. And then look at verse um, 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion... To those in Jacob who turn from transgression. So, he uh, next uh, point there. He ensures a redeemer. He promises a redeemer will come. Remember, remember the first verse we read tonight back in Isaiah fifty six says uh, salvation will come, and here he kind of clarifies how will salvation come through a redeemer, a person will come. And verse twenty one here, 
And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth, just like Joshua had told them, or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. And this last point here shows us that he establishes a covenant. He establishes a covenant. This is, this is a permanent relationship that God has with his people. He says, a redeemer will come. Through that redeemer, my spirit will be on, uh, will be on you. My spirit that is upon you. He'll give you my words. My words will be in your mouth. They'll be in the mouth of your children and your children's children. All right? Here's, here's how that works spiritually. Okay, we'll close with this. Here's how this works spiritually. Um, you may or may not uh, one day actually have physical children of your own. You might. Uh, a lot of you may. But whether or not you do, you ought to, you and I ought to have spiritual offspring. There ought to be people who come to Christ because of us. And, and so when God puts His words in our mouth and we speak them to other people so that they become our spiritual offspring, then guess where His words go? Into their mouth, into the mouth of their children. All right? this, is, this is what we would call uh, discipling, discipleship. All right? The reason that the youth leaders here uh, spend the time with us every Wednesday is for sure not because of me. It's not because of the music. It's because they care a lot about passing on the Word of God to you. And we hope and pray that you will then take that Word of God and pass it on to others also. Because you have the same Bible and the same Holy Spirit that we do. And so this is, this is how this relationship that God establishes with us gets passed on and on and on. And it's the way that, uh, that fulfills what Jesus says that when He says, I'm gathering other sheep into my fold so that they can be my flock and I can be their shepherd. So, I want to pray with you uh, that the Lord will make these things true for us. Father, thank you for shepherding us, for gathering us as your flock, for calling us by your name and giving us your spirit and, and making us uh, your children. Lord, we don't, we don't deserve it. There's nothing we can do to earn that. Uh, and yet, you, in your kindness, have uh, come down yourself in the form of your Son, the Lord Jesus, to live obediently and to die sacrificially and to rise victoriously. And we can't help but worship you because of that. So thank you that you have, have gathered us, that, that you have caused us uh, to see these things about you. And Lord, I pray that we will respond in worship, uh, not just in the songs that we sing, but Lord, in the way that we live, the way that we are um, on a regular basis, uh, wherever it is you have us, at school, at work, at home, um, in the community. Lord, we want to uh, make this relationship with you visible so that others will, will see you and we can point them to you. We give you the praise for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.